1: Taxes and fees not included. Offer valid through 414.24 while supplies last. Online only. Must purchase a straight talk extended silver unlimited plan to qualify. Limit of five phones per customer. Family plan discount with four lines all on the Silver Unlimited Plan. Not combinable with AutoPay Discount.
2: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
0: Look out. It's only films to be buried with. We're back, baby! Hello and welcome to a new load of films to be buried with. My name is Brett Goldstein, I'm a comedian, an actor, a writer, a director, a paper merchant and I love film. As the great Rumi once said, you were born with wings, why prefer to crawl through life? If you can see Oppenheimer on an IMAX screen, why wouldn't you, do you know what I mean? Fair enough Rumi, I agree. Every week I invite a special guest over, I tell them they've died, then I get them to discuss their life through the films that meant the most to them. Previous guests include Barry Jenkins, Himesh Patel, Sharon Stone, Mark Frost, and even Bled Clambles. But this week, it's the brilliant legend that is Adam Buxton. Remember, you can watch all of Ted Lasso, seasons 1 to 3, and all of Shrinking, season 1, on Apple TV+. Head over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein, where you'll get an extra 25 minutes of chat with Adam. We talk about secrets. He tells me his favourite beginning and ending to a film. You get the whole episode uncut, ad-free, and as a video. Check it out over at patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein. So, Adam Buxton is... Fucking amazing. I've been trying to get him on the podcast since I started it and I was very grateful he gave me his time. We recorded this a while back on Zoom and I've been holding on to it for a special occasion to release it. You all know him from The Adam and Joe Show and his writing and his comedy and of course his hugely influential and incredible podcast, The Adam Buxton Podcast. He's one of my heroes. I've admired him since I first saw The Adam and Joe Show back in the day. He was an absolute delight to spend time with and I really think you're going to love this one. So welcome back, everyone. That is it for now. I very much hope you enjoy episode 260 of Films To Be Buried With. Hello and welcome to Films To Be Buried With. It is me, Brett Goldstein, and I am joined today by the inventor of YouTube, the inventor of radio, the inventor of TV acting, the inventor of film acting, the inventor of podcasts, and the inventor of walking with dog, and the inventor of being a husband and father and book writer and editor and songwriter and live performer and hero and legend. He's alive. He's here. We can't believe it. Can you? I can't. But he is. Check it out. It's really him. Welcome to the show. It's the brilliant Adam Baxter. Thanks very much. Oh, what a treat to have you, Adam. How's it going? It's good,
3: man. I mean, you're right. I did invent all those things. You did. I was thinking but, it. Tell me. But, you know, the, the problem with being the inventor of things mm. is that because you're right at the front, part of being an inventor is g- getting everything wrong. And then everyone who comes after you improves on all those things and does Uh, them properly. Agreed. But still, nice to have invented so many things.
0: Yeah. I mean, you sort of did though, right? I mean, you know that. You know that. I'm sure you go to bed at night (laughs) going, I fucking started all this. But as in consistently, you invented YouTube, (laughs) then you invented radios, then you invented Double X, and then you invented podcasts.
3: The one thing that I genuinely feel that me and Joe Cornish got to a little bit before other people was doing... Parodies of TV shows and films with toys, and I'm not claiming that we were the first people ever in history to have done that. That would be incredibly stupid and hubristic. But I feel like we were certainly some of the first people to do it in that silly, snarky adult way, for better or worse. And I think we predated Robot Chicken by yes a little bit. Uh, But then Robot Chicken came out was so brilliantly. Technically and comedically, realised that we were instantly overshadowed, and people assumed I think that we kind of ripped them off, which was not the case.
0: No, you were the you were the vanguard, and also I feel like you also invented like fil- filming in shops, <laughs> like doing stuff with real people in shops. No, I
3: I, be- I believe Candid Camera did that no, before
0: we did. No, thank you. Agree to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, also, do you know what else you invented? I was thinking about this. Uh-huh. If, uh, I hope this doesn't make you sad, but I think that you also invented talking about grief openly. And like everyone who follows your podcast, which I think is everyone who has podcasts, you know, when your father died, it was such a big part of it. And then with your mother as well, like, it, like following your, you very openly talking about your mental health and about your grief and the complicated way you talk about your dad is really... You were the first person to do that. You're probably the reason everyone's um, banging on about everything now,
3: I triggered the oversharing yeah. phrase.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is all your fault.
3: <laughs> I inadvertently made people's problems worse by having them focus far too much on the things that, in my father's time, people just got on with yeah. and uh, toughed out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Yeah. no, I definitely didn't invent that, but it certainly felt as if one of the nice things about podcasts was the time to talk about those things without it being excruciating. I mean, maybe it's, I always worry that I talk about those things too much still. I am genuinely conflicted about sharing and ruminating in that way too much. I think you've got to find a balance. But on the other hand, it's so nice to be able to have long form friendly conversations with people in a way that you never really could on tv or on radio i don't think where there's such a pressure to keep things moving and no dead air please no awkward pauses and so anyway it's nice to be able to do that
0: i worry that i mean one of the reasons i keep this podcast going is i'm like i don't think we have these conversations anywhere else you know what I mean? As in, when do you sit for an hour, an hour and a half with someone face-to-face and have a conversation in life? I don't. What it's you true. You know what I mean? We've had to invent podcasts to have proper conversations. Yeah. <laughs> do you ever um, put stuff, like, particularly when you're, like, having your walks and you're, you know, clearly thinking through something and talking about it out loud, do you listen back to it or do you just send it off? Like, do you ever regret it? Do you ever go, oh, fuck, I feel shame that I said all this stuff and put it out in the world? or? Are you like always at
3: peace with that's done and that's out? Oh man, I'm I'm never at peace. All right. <laughs> I, I'm always feeling as though I'm cringing constantly at the person I have been and the person I am. It's a you know it's a process of evolution, isn't it? It's never ending. Yeah, you're just constantly kind of revising and updating and um, hoping that you're gradually learning lessons. But yeah, I I, I cringe the entire time. I feel. <laughs> Because people say in the creative industries, right, like you're supposed to go with your instinct. People are always telling you, just go with your instinct. I'm pretty sure my instincts are shit on loads of things. And sometimes when I make a conscious decision, like, what does your heart tell you, Buckles? What are you instinctively feeling about this decision? And I'll, I'll go, I'll go with that. I'll be true to myself. And then afterwards, I'm like, oh, yeah, I hate myself. I should never have gone with that. I mean, that that is Mm. a clue to a whole other raft of issues with my own self-esteem and my own relationship with myself and the degree to which I struggle with a certain amount of self-loathing. But, you know, it's a constant balancing act between the bits I like about myself and wanting to listen to those and the bits I really don't like about myself and trying to tell the difference between the two. Okay. You know what I mean? That's a long, I do windy know what you mean.
0: answer to your question. I do I do know what you mean, particularly in terms of self-esteem and stuff. And I was thinking of this the other day. You tell me from your side, if you're someone with low like, self-esteem and self-loathing, right? But you are objectively, if you take your emotions out of it, objectively, you're very successful and you're kind of beloved. And there are certainly large large numbers of people who you can find evidence of you can find you know essays written about you like people love you right but has that had any effect on your self-esteem or self-loathing or do you just go these people are mad and wrong funnily enough i don't think they're mad and wrong And it
3: really does cheer me up. And every now and again, I'll see people in real life who'll Mm. come up and say very sweetly and sincerely to me that they enjoy the podcast. And part of me is always, you know, there's always that small voice in your head that's saying, yeah, but that's because I edit the podcast heavily (laughs) and present the version of myself that I want to present. And that's part Mm. of the exercise of the podcast on some level, a colossal, vain effort to uh, kind of manage the way I come across. But that's only part of it. I do think that there's a lot of my genuine self in there as well. And it is really encouraging when when people connect with that and enjoy that. And it, do- and it has cheered me up, certainly. On occasions right. when I'm really staring into the abyss, I am able to sometimes rationalize and say, look, you're not such a brilliant... Um, you know, a manipulator that you've managed to fool all these people. There is something worthwhile about it.
0: There's too many hours of your stuff. Like if you, if you, if it was all so curated, you'd have given it away at some point. You know what I mean? There'd have been cracks.
3: Yeah. I mean, but but you're always thinking in, in dark moments, you do tend to think like, you know, you think about the people that don't like what you do so much. Yes. And those are the, y- you find yourself agreeing with them. Completely, completely. <laughs> you know what I mean. You think, yeah. oh yeah, they've they've got the measure of me.
0: You know, you you do you do stand up. It's a, a stand up gig. The one guy in in the fourth row with his arms folded looks miserable. Everyone else is laughing, and you think he knows. <laughs> he knows yeah, exactly. He knows the truth. Yeah, But it's weird, isn't
3: it? Because they're they're not, even though you have that, you afford them that level of respect in a way. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't like those people. I don't like people who dislike me. I don't want to hang out with them. I much prefer people who do like me. (laughs) (laughs) So I have to remind myself of that as well. You know, I have to remind myself like, oh, you know, those people that you pay attention to who criticize you, are they really the kind of people that you want to impress and... Most of the time, they're not really. They're people that I don't really, I wouldn't really get on with. We just see the world differently and that's why they don't like what I do. So I have to kind of make peace with that.
0: Well, let me cheer you up with some news that I forgot to tell you at the beginning. Oh yeah,
3: what's happened? uh, You're dead. I'm playing playing along with your acting ruse. This is the part of the podcast (laughs) I enjoy when you and your guests start acting.
0: (laughs) Oh, we'll make it longer, we'll make it longer. Oh, yes. Because you're an actor. Oh God. I don't know. What's, that? what's up? Hey, what's up, man? Oh, shit. Did You've suddenly gone all f- fretty. Did what's, your what's agent uh, tell you anything specific about this podcast or just... What? Just, did your agent oh, no. just said the time and day?
3: Yeah, yeah. Why? What's going on?
0: Oh, man. What? A, ah! I don't know you well enough to just sort of say this. Do you know what I mean? I don't want you to feel like this was like a prank or I set this up, but I have some news. And, what, uh, what's happened, man?
3: Oh, you I don't can tell
0: me I don't know. How I have do you, a dog? Oh God, you have a dog as well. What and and a wife and uh, a, you've also got some kids, I think. you can be straight with me. Do you think okay, before I tell you, do you think that, that they would miss you if you weren't around? I guess this will help me with this next part.
3: Not the dog No, I don't think the dog would notice. I think the
0: dog would be fine.
3: But the wife and kids do you think I it's going to be an
0: issue for if you weren't around Just I'm not saying what it is. a couple of the
3: kids. One of them will be fine. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, so it's sort of 50, 50 on the wife, kids and dog. Well, the mm. thing is you're, you've died. You're dead. Oh no. Uh,
3: oh, man. I knew it was going to happen at some point. Oh man.
0: I'm so sorry. How did you die?
3: Well, I died in a bleak future where have you seen, um, this occurred to me the other day, actually, when <laughs> a while back during the pandemic. And we went to see a film. Maybe I won't say the name of the film because I don't want to be down on it. I know it's a film that a lot of people enjoyed, but I didn't enjoy it. And when we came out of the multiplex, it was the first time we'd been to the cinema in about, you know, a year and a half or something. It felt like it was a long time. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: And um, it was quite a dispiriting journey to the cinema in all sorts of ways because everything was only just beginning to open up. It was pretty bleak. We went to uh, one of the malls in Norwich and half the shops were shuttered out of business and it looked kind of like a scene from one of the zombie movies one of the day of the dead movies you know and the only shops that were still open were s- things like selling phone cases oh, and uh sweet shops and mobility scooter shops oh, wow. and vape shops and it was like wow i'm getting strong apocalypse vibes from yeah. this from this mall like this is when it comes down to it this is what modern humanity feels is most necessary in a mm. pandemic is mobility scooters sweet shops vape <laughs> vape shops and mobile uh, phone, phone case shops yeah and then we went to see this film and the film i didn't like the f-
0: was there a paintball was there a paintball table table selling paintball if there had been paintball that would have been that would have cheered me up okay. But no
3: there was no paintball there was an arcade as well the arcade was doing right. great business i was like how's that good in in the <laughs> pandemic just all the buttons and knobs covered in covid yeah. anyway okay. but it occurred to me as we were coming out of the movie that maybe one day they'll just have um walk-in euthanasia centers as well a bit like the film soylent green
0: Yes. Okay. It's a lovely idea.
3: (laughs) And I thought you could have two exits from the cinema. You could have one exit back into the mall and the other exit was just go straight to the euthanasia center. And then you can, in Soylent Green, Edward G. Robinson lies in the, you know, the film Soylent Green, right? Yes. Have you seen it?
0: I actually haven't seen it, but I know what Soylent Green is.
3: Right. Okay. Yeah. So it's a film. It's an amazing film and incredibly prescient in all sorts of ways. And it's about a a future that's horribly overpopulated and there's climate catastrophe and food shortages and all sorts of stuff that we're frightened about in our modern time. And there are regular riots over food shortages in these overcrowded cities and the, the government sends out these kind of you know, diggers with big scoops on them and they just shovel up all the rioters and dump them in the back. It's it's incredibly bleak and dystopian, but brilliant. But the scene that really made such an impression on me when I saw it as a youngster was this scene where this old guy has finally had enough of living in this horrible nightmare society. And in this overcrowded world in Soylent Green, you have the option as a citizen to go and just euthanize yourself. And you can go into a a walk-in center, and it's the only place in this horrible city where there's space and where people treat you properly as a person. So they welcome you. It's like going to a fancy hotel. Everyone's nice to you, and they (laughs) lead you to a a lovely, comfortable room, and you lie down on the bed, and it's a bit like an IMAX, (laughs) a private IMAX. And they project all these beautiful images of what the world used to be like before it got totally fucked. And it's all beautiful shots of nature and streams and and animals gambling in beautiful fields. Mm. And then gradually you slip under because they administer the lethal injection. So I was thinking, yeah, that's probably what malls will be like in Norwich. And I'd say 10 years, you'll have the option to just go to the euthanasia clinic. And depending on what film you've seen, they'll project in amongst all the images of how beautiful the world was. Mm. There'll probably be outtakes from the film that you just saw. Well, and there'll I be extra bits from, yeah, bloopers, just to cheer you up as you're slipping <laughs> under. And also extra bits with, you know, Taika Waititi doing wisecracks with um, Ryan Reynolds. And um, that's how I died. I was in one of those euthanasia centers.
0: I mean, I think if they did do that in the mill you're describing, where they're selling phone cases and vapes, I think I'd go straight there.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because they'd probably have like as you're going in, they'd probably they'd have vapes and stuff like that there as well, and they'd have like grabbers and.
0: Well, they'd probably have sort of very beautiful people at the door, like welcome, come in. I mean, it's yeah. it's a pretty good idea. How old? Would you like to be when you choose to go in this euthanasia clinic? It's going to be
3: fairly soon. Okay. Because I don't want to get too old. No. Because from what I've seen of old age so far, I'm not Not massively in favor. Mm. No, I mean, I say that I'm being glib. Part of the process of becoming Buckles 2.0 and trying to upgrade is coming to terms with growing older and with old age. And actually, I really don't want to face it in the same way that my mum did. She never really made peace with getting old. Mm. And it always made me sad to see her sad about being old. You know, she was very upbeat in, lots, in, in most ways, but every now and again, she'd just look in the mirror and she'd kind of, I could see the shadow coming over her. She hated it. She was like, oh, I hate being old. I hate being old. Mm. Obviously, I get it. Yeah. But I don't want to be like that myself. I, I, I'm really hopeful that I can realign...
0: What's the answer? Like in an ideal, because I think about this a lot, in an ideal world, if you are your very, very best self, what are you meant to be thinking then when you are old? When you are objectively old, are you meant to be thinking, this is great. I'm so old I can't move and I'm in pain all the time. What are you like? What's the the sort of acceptance, happy version of that? Do you know what I
3: mean? I guess you're just... In a state where you're appreciating, you're grateful for all the things that are still available to you, even if they are very much more limited than they used to be. That's the thing is like your, your choices are compromised as you get older. Hmm. And it's a process of coming to terms with that and being grateful for the things that you still have. But I am encouraged by... Things like the film um, that Julian Temple made about Wilco Johnson being diagnosed with cancer a few years back. Wilco Johnson, who was a guitar player in the band Doctor Feelgood, and he at a certain point was diagnosed with cancer, and it was a it was a pretty bad diagnosis. Like they only gave him a few months or something. Oh, wow. And his friend Julian Temple, the filmmaker. Mm-hmm did this documentary about him, and it's called The Ecstasy of Wilco Johnson. And he was just suddenly, after the initial shock of the diagnosis, he he was just transformed into someone who was ecstatic about the time that he had left and how he was suddenly able to appreciate in kind of minute and very intense detail everything that he could still appreciate about life and what an amazing world it was in lots of ways, as well as being a difficult place and i've heard that from a few people mm. who get terminal diagnoses not saying obviously everyone responds the same way but yeah. some people do they suddenly suddenly there's a kind of relief at being set free from the constant worry about your own mortality yeah and how it's going to play out what the end will be like how much time do you have left what's going to happen how are you going to buy the farm all that kind of stuff suddenly it's gone and all you have to do now is make the most of The time you have left. And of course, that's what we should all be doing all the time. And we all know carpe diem, blah, blah, blah. But actually, real life gets in the way, doesn't it? I've had this conversation a few times.
0: But you tell me, I would love to know the day I'm going to die. Would you? If I could tell you, you've got this long.
3: Well, that's a bit like, have you gone and got a um, DNA test?
0: No. Will that tell me when I'm going to die?
3: Well, it'll give you, it might give you a fair indication. Oh, God. It depends on the kind of DNA test you get. If you just get a a, a test about, like, oh, my family, part of my family came from the Netherlands or something, then that's uh, a a different one. But you, I think you can get pretty accurate tests about like what kind of medical conditions are you prone to. What is it likely that is going to happen to you in that way? Obviously, it's still totally random because you know. There's accidents and all sorts of other things that might happen. Nothing is set in stone. And even if you are genetically predisposed to certain conditions, those are just switches that might be flipped. Yeah. They won't necessarily be flipped. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I don't want that in my head. I don't want you maybe have this disease coming. Yep. I, I'm like, just tell me the yeah. day. This day the you're going to get okay. hit by a bus. This day. I it, don't even have to tell me how I die. Just tell me. Because exactly the thing you're talking about, I've thought about this a lot, if you tell me I've got 50 years to live, I will carry on much as I am now. If you tell me I'm gonna be dead in two years, I'll probably change a few things. You know what I mean? Like I'll probably be like, well, I don't need to bother with that fucking thing. And you get me? Like, yeah. it would change. I
3: do, but then wouldn't you be, from a practical point of view, if that if that was me though, I'd then yeah. be thinking, yeah, but how am I gonna die then in two years? Is it gonna be a slow build-up? Am I starting am I <laughs> gonna start going downhill? nine months beforehand? Is it going to be sudden? Mm.
0: You know. Well, that's the fun bit. You don't know that. In in this game, <laughs> you just know the day. <laughs>
3: we already have the fun bit in that case. We we, we already have the, the fun bit is not knowing and, and, yeah. and living as well as you can in case.
0: That's the theory, isn't it? How often do you worry about death?
3: Well, in one way or another,
0: quite a bit, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> always or more recently?
3: Oh, no. Always been quite a worrier. Okay. And grew up in the 80s, you know, was was 10 years old in 1980 and lived through years of really acute anxiety about nuclear war,
0: Yeah,
3: which a lot of people of my age can relate to, I think. And um, a lot of films that came out around that time, The Day After
1: and Threads. Threads.
3: The Day After was the big one, 1983, yeah. which they showed on ITV, like, three weeks before Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, I looked up the director and he he turns out to be someone who, he directed Star Trek 4, The Voyage Home. Oh, wow. So he didn't just do, he didn't just do super bleak um, nuclear war stuff.
0: You know, the guy who made Threads made LA Story, the Steve Martin film. Really?
3: Yeah. What a life, what a career. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. But, um, yeah, the the day after absolutely scared the shit out of me and um, made me think a lot about nuclear war. What do you think happens after you die? I mean, I haven't had any proof that anything happens. Mm-hmm. I'm always looking for it. I'm very much open to all sorts of possibilities. I'd really like to see some ghosts. Yeah, haven't seen any yet. My wife reckons she's seen ghosts.
0: <gasps> I'm pretty me.
3: sure she was drunk. <laughs> Um, and everyone I know, all the friends that I have who swear that they've seen ghosts, I don't really trust them in that respect, I'm afraid.
0: <laughs> can you tell me one of your wife's ghost stories?
3: They're kind of second-handy. There was one about, now can I tell you, it's all stuff like, oh, I saw an old guy in a coach. Now that you've pinned me down... Mm. I can't even tell you what they were. I okay. think she maybe she maybe she just believes in a general way in ghosts. Right. It's usually think like the, the the ghost stories that I've heard from people that I'm close with are things like they're pretty crap, you know. It's it's <laughs> it's either someone standing at the end of the bed. Yeah. Where you just think you were asleep. <laughs> you were so, you were obviously asleep <laughs> or you were half awake and did you know that when you are in that state, it's very easy to see all sorts of things that can be easily explained by being half asleep? <laughs> um, so it's usually things like that. And mm. there, there was one story a friend of mine told me. He swears that the pedal bin, or is it a pedal bin? Well, it's no, it's a bin with you, you know uh, a sort of split, swing bin, uh, ro- rotating flippy thing.
0: Yeah, flippy bin. Yeah,
3: and he reckons the. The rotating flippy hatch yeah. was just spinning round and round and round and wouldn't stop. And yeah. there was no wind. The doors were closed. Nothing like that. And it was just a flying ghost in the bin. round and round and round. But even that, you know, even that, I just think, no, it wasn't.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> you don't believe there was a ghost in the bin? Just flipping the <laughs> flippy bit. <laughs> there might have been a big rat. Yeah, could have been. Well, I got news for you, buddy boy. There's a heaven, a real one, and you are welcome there. They're huge fans. They welcome you in with open arms, and it's filled with your favorite thing. What's your favorite thing? Music. It's filled with music everywhere you go, music.
3: I mean, it would be, wouldn't it? It really would.
0: It's mostly gospel, and it's great, and everyone's there that you love, and they're all excited to see you. There's Bowie. He's excited to see you. He's like, I've heard you, all your stuff. And you're like, get the fuck out of here. Me too. And then everyone wants to talk to you, (laughs) but they want to talk to you about your life through film. The first thing they ask you, what is the first film you remember seeing, Adam Buxton?
3: First film, I was was really trying to think hard about this. It would have been something, it would have been a sort of Disney thing. We were heavily Mm -hmm. on board with the Disney program in the 70s when I was growing up. I was born in 1969. So some of the first things I remember seeing, maybe on TV, things like um, The Jungle Book and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Mary Poppins, things like that. But then I think we started going to the movies Mm -hmm. and it would always be my mum that took us because she was a, a film fan as well. Towards the end of the 70s, and 77 was the big year that I have proper memories of for the first time. So I would have been eight, or mm-hmm. s- well, seven, eight. We went to see Pete's Dragon, I remember. <sighs> and uh, I thought Pete's Dragon was pretty good because I hadn't seen, I don't think I'd seen cartoons and live action blended in that way before. So I was well
0: impressed. Pete's Dragon is the film, me and my sister, Every weekend, we're allowed to get a video out of the video shop. And I think for about two years, every weekend, we just got out Pete's Dragon. I fucking wow. love Pete's Dragon.
3: Was it good? Because I don't think I've ever seen it again.
0: Oh, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, it's weirdly Pete's dragon is, a very sort of badly reviewed... Is he reviewed nice, the dragon? Lovely dragon. Very sweet. He's a nice dragon and he also goes invisible and he cooks... He's not apples. like far right. No, he's Turns pretty... out he's really heavily racist, <laughs> far right dragon. I think he's quite liberal It's quite (laughs) open-minded. There's uh, Hillbillies, They're the Bad Guys, Barbara. Yes, okay. Very good. Lovely songs. Critically reviled, incorrectly.
3: Yeah. I mean, it probably doesn't stand up. How dare you? If we were to watch it now. But then there was The Rescuers that year as well. lovely. Which I liked quite a lot. With a plucky female heroine, I believe I'm right in saying. Unusual for the time. A Lady, ma'am, um, and then of course I don't know if you've heard of Star Wars. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've heard of it. It's like a farm boy. <laughs> he makes friends with a, a bin, and right? Right? Uh, they go on adventures. <laughs> a
0: flippy bin, okay. Yeah, sounds good.
3: <laughs> yeah, the bin can talk, and it was good. I thought, and we went to see that, and that was, I suppose, one of the more gr- the one of the more like maybe the first sort of grown up ish film that I had seen, and. A very memorable trip to the movies, you know. And then getting out, I remember getting out into the foyer, and they didn't have any merch at that point. I think it was still early days for Star Wars. So we saw it January 78, I think. We were living in Wales at the time, and my mum drove us down to London. Mm -hmm. And we went to see Star Wars in Leicester Square. Wow. And it was incredibly exciting. And yeah, the, I don't think they had the toys at that point. They hadn't started doing right. all the merchandising properly. The only thing you could buy was a soundtrack. Wow. And so I begged my mum to buy the soundtrack, not really understanding what a soundtrack was. Yeah. I thought a soundtrack would be all the sounds of the film, just the yeah. talking and
0: just the, the sound audio. of the whole film.
3: Yeah, yeah, the audio of the film. Like a radio play. I'm looking yeah. For. Exactly. Because that's the bit I wanted. I was like, I just wanted any way to retain mm. moments of the of the film and, and the characters. And basically what I wanted was a, a video of it. But obviously there, <laughs> there was no such thing in them days. So we got the soundtrack and it was incredibly disappointing to find out that it was just the music, even though obviously the music's good. But that's not what I wanted at that point. I wanted the talking.
0: Uh, forgive me if you've ever talked about this and I haven't heard you talk about this or written about this. You did loads of really good uh, Star Wars sketches, do we call them? Short mm. films with toys and whatnot over the years. Have you, have you ever met George Lucas? Has he ever seen these? Have you had any feedback from George Lucas? On I this?
3: don't. don't like? No, I definitely haven't. I don't All know right. if Joe's met George Lucas in his film travels. It's possible. I mean, he's met Spielberg, hasn't he? So... Yeah, yeah. I can't remember if he's met... George Lucas or not. But, he, but Joe, Joe never tells people in the film world what he used to do. I think okay. he's a bit ashamed of it. Right. I think he feels like he has to keep that secret. <laughs> if they find out that he used to take the piss out of Hollywood with right. Star Wars toys, then he'll be thrown out of the film club.
0: Yeah, that's how it works. Yeah. Okay, amazing. So when you saw Star Wars and all these things, did you think, I just love this as in did you did you think i want to be in this i want to be part of this or i just love this
3: the idea that you could be in it wasn't anywhere near my head right in 1978 as a you know 8 year old film was totally magical there was total total separation between yeah. the entertainment world and real life no crossover whatsoever which is why things like It'll Be All Right on the Night, which was a TV Mm. show that um, showed kind of bloopers, mainly from TV, but occasionally, thrillingly, they would show bloopers from feature films that they somehow got hold of. And I was addicted to that show, and it was a special occasion show. You know what I mean? It was like they would have it at Christmas time or on public holidays. You get another dose of It'll Be All Right on the Night. And it felt so magical and thrilling to get a glimpse, a behind-the-scenes glimpse of these films being made, you know, and any time that, cause they didn't really have behind the scenes yeah. stuff that much. They, it started to happen in the eighties. There was a behind the scenes thing that they showed on TV about Indiana Jones about Raiders of the Lost Ark. And, um, that was incredibly exciting, but yeah, you know, there, there was no way that you could be a part of that world. It was totally separate. You'd never see any of those people. You'd never meet anyone who was involved. I didn't know anyone who was in the film industry, and yeah. certainly my parents didn't.
0: What did you want to be in when you were like a teenager?
3: I mean, honest answer is a space ban. Okay, like an astronaut, right? Or a sweet shop owner? They were the, they were my two favorite things: space and sweets. Oh my god! So I was like, well. Ideally, it would be great to go to space. Probably, that isn't going to happen. More realistically, maybe I could get some kind of corner shop, and then I would have access to All the sweets. Sweets at any time.
0: What about the um, you know those ice creams, space ice creams? You get was that the perfect crossover <laughs> of
3: <laughs> the the lollies shaped like rockets? You mean I,
0: I don't, but them too. But you know, the, you could buy like dry ice cream, which is what astronauts eat.
3: Oh my God, that would have been amazing. I never had any of those. Well, you've got that
0: to look forward to. What is the film (laughs) that scared you the most? Do you like being scared?
3: I like being fun scared. Right. But I don't like being, you know, really scared. Like the horrible fear films were things like The Day After. Yeah, That's what really genuinely scared me the most. And the other night, I was watching um, TV and flipping around, and my wife went up to bed, and then I came across um, Chernobyl: yeah. The Lost Tapes. Oh shit! That's the documentary. The documentary that the TV series was based on. Basically, they just—I didn't realize that they'd lifted wholesale whole sections of the documentary and dramatized them, essentially. <laughs> and I came across the bit where I'm laughing, but it's—it's it's bleak laughter. The bit with the firefighters in the hospital before they realize that they're totally ravaged by radiation and they haven't started getting ill. <laughs> oh my God. It was, it was just, it's beyond horror. It's mm-hmm. beyond, that's the thing is like real life offers up things that are so much more vividly horrific than anything you could imagine. And in my mind, it sometimes makes horror a little bit redundant in that way. Mm-hmm. You know what I
0: mean?
3: Yeah. Also, with, true crime. I'm quite literal minded. So even on a show like Poker Face, which, which I love, Natasha Leone, which yeah. is great, Maybe. but it's a true crime thing, right? So it starts with a murder every week and then she sort of solves the murder. Even that, you know, it's, it's mainly played for laughs. It's quite light, but I just go, oh no, that's so sad. That person was murdered. <laughs> and I'm not suggesting that I'm so sensitive and everyone who loves true crime, they're not sensitive like I am. I think that most people are just able to distinguish between and to compartmentalize, right?
0: Yeah,
3: Disengage certain sensitivities when they're watching movies, but I've never really been able to do that. So I don't like that. But Fun Fear, Alien is the big one. That was the one that I had to wait a long time before I saw Mm -hmm. as a youngster, but... Ever since it came out, I remember not being able to sleep and going and finding my mum, and she was watching film eighty, I think. I think, I mean, I can't remember if the film came out in seventy nine or eighty. I'm not sure, but anyway, she was watching Barry Norman's film review program, and uh, he was the best ever movie, the film, yeah, movie reviewer on the on TV. I think I saw a clip of him the other day. He's like, wow, he was, great, he was great. Anyway, he was reviewing Alien and they showed a clip and it, it, I was just completely mesmerized because it seemed, and indeed it turned out when I finally saw the film like four or five years later when I was finally old enough, it seemed real. Everything about mm. it seemed real and it still seems real now. I saw it the other, the other night. I was flipping around and it came on. And it's so well directed and the actors are so good the, the rhythm of it, it feels very naturalistic and yeah. documentary style. It's brilliant. And the, the um, soundscape, what do you call it? The kind of audio work? The sound stuff. The sound stuff. It's really good. All mm-hmm. these kind of slightly musical noises and burbles and... It's half like synthesizer stuff, half kind of machine hums, all very sinister. It's constantly bubbling away. Mm. And all these things create such an amazing atmosphere. Plus, of course, the central premise, which is a creature busting out of your stomach. Yeah, So that's so um, horrific. That kind of body horror really frightens me in the same way that that Chernobyl footage you know, looking at stuff like that is very upsetting. Real illness and body stuff gets to me. All that kind yeah. of um, David Cronenberg yeah. type stuff I find very, very unsettling. But Alien got the balance right; like it was dealable with. Yeah, but still very, very shocking and frightening.
0: Alien's got that thing I keep talking about because so I'm obsessed with because I think we we don't have it enough in like Hollywood films. And maybe it was just, it was a lot of films in the 70s, it seems. But like Spielberg used to do it and Scorsese did it. This thing you're talking about of atmosphere, it's partly the sound stuff. But it's also like, maybe it's a bit improvised in the dialogue. Like it just feels like people talking. You're not catching everything everyone's saying. They feel like a real crew who've been hanging out too long. It doesn't feel polished. It's a bit dirty. It's fucking great. Good choice.
3: Yeah. Truckers in Space.
0: Truckers in Space. What is the film... That made you cry the
3: most. Are you a crier? You're a crier. Oh, man. Yeah, I am a crier and it's getting worse and worse. (laughs) And I'm very easily triggered. The other day, it's not the film that makes me cry the most, but the other day, again, it was one of those things. It's a modern phenomenon, I think, of the the kind of uh, multi-channel age when you're flicking around and you're not kind of prepared for certain things. And suddenly you come across films either that have a strong emotional resonance for you mm-hmm. or things that you just weren't ready for. Suddenly you're confronted with these moments. And we came across uh, Parenthood, the Ron Howard Oh, I love Parenthood. And I suddenly realized like, oh shit, I think most of my ideas about what it would be like to be a parent were formed by Parenthood. Yeah. So when did that come out? Like end of the 80s, Eighty-eight. And I was a, uh, yeah, I was, I was a teenager in late teens, nearly 20. I saw parenthood. I was many years away from becoming a father myself, but it really resonated with me. And I think it was one of the first times when I understood a little bit about what it must've been like for my parents having children. And, um, I do think there's lots of quite good stuff in there that is still relatable, but the bit that we came across when we were flicking around, we found parenthood was the bit where Joaquin Phoenix, who was at the time like beautiful and young, 12 years old or 13 or something like that. He's got lovely floppy hair. Anyway, he is the he's playing the son of Diane Wiest. And she is divorced in the film from her husband. And the husband doesn't really, he's moved on. He's got a new family. He doesn't really want to have anything to do with his old family. But the son, played by Joaquin, He's having a bad time at home. He wants to reconnect with his dad and spend some time with his dad. He's fed up with being with mm. Diane Weist, So he he gets on the phone to his dad and his mum is sort of over in the corner watching him and saying, I don't think you should phone your dad. He's like, I am going to phone my dad. I want to see my dad. So he phones up and his dad's just totally not interested. He's busy. He's like, how'd you get this number? He's just totally cold with his son. And it was, I just came apart. I just... It was like someone had just turned on a tap.
1: Hmm. <laughs>
3: and I just started crying. I don't know why. My parents didn't get divorced in that way. I mean, they separated. Who knows? I I, I found it hard to understand where my response was coming from, but it was so heartbreaking.
0: <laughs> this scene was it was it like a, a fear of your children feeling like that if you didn't have that?
3: I don't think so. I mean, it was it was really mysterious. I think hmm. it's just it was a brilliant performance by Joaquin. Yeah. It's so sad. What's <laughs> this guy on the phone to his dad and his dad doesn't want to know. Oh my God. Sorry. I'm going, I'm going again. <laughs> so that really made me cry. But other films that always set me off are um, Remains of the Day.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs>
3: Cause that's dad stuff, right? So yeah. anything with dads, watch out. Forget it. That Forget just reaches it. right in and yeah. tears your soul out. And, Oh, Enough Said. Have you ever seen that? Nicole Holofcener's film. Oh, yeah. With uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus and James Gandolfini. Yes. From 2013.
0: It was like his last film,
3: no? No, not his last uh, film. Yeah, one of them, surely, yeah. Julia Louis-Dreyfus, she's a single, I'm reading from the synopsis, single mother, Eva, enjoys her profession as a masseuse but is worried as her daughter is about to begin college She meets Albert, played by James Gandolfini, and discovers that he's her new friend's ex-husband. Anyway, she forms this friendship with James Gandolfini's character, And they get really close and then they fall out over something. He feels that he hasn't been honest with her and he doesn't want to see her anymore. And she goes around and tries to apologize and say, listen, this is silly. You know, we got on so well. I'm really sorry. And he just won't. (laughs) He won't take the um, he won't take her apology. I mean, you can hear I am just a total disaster area. As soon as I come in any kind of proximity with these themes and these moments in these films, it's like I'm being electrocuted Mm. or something, and I cannot, I can't keep, I can't keep it together. And Julia Louis Dreyfus in this film is amazing. She's so good. There's one bit where she's so sad (laughs) that James Gandolfini doesn't want to be friends with her. She can't believe it. She's heartbroken. And, and I come apart. Every time is it the is it, it the
0: is it the friendship of it or is it the the fact that he's not she's not forgiven? What's yeah, the...
3: it's all those things. It's just it's just very deep, kind of elemental yeah. stuff. Things that are painful, really painful, and think... sad. You know, and 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 when you see them so well evoked, yeah. I think also I there's a kind of sentimental part of me that gets very emotional when you see anything good. You know what I mean? Like I when do you see exactly what you mean. when you see something that's done so well. Yeah. When someone's, you see a great performance and someone captures something very true, it's really moving.
0: <laughs> Have you seen The Banshees of Inisharian? Because that'll finish <laughs> yes. you off. I'm,
3: laugh, I'm laughing because me and my wife had such a massive row about it <laughs> oh, over no Christmas. Why. I picked it as our Christmas Day movie with the whole family. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking that it was going to be a hoot because I really liked... Um, in Bruges yeah. I thought they've got the gang back together again it's going to be great times like in Bruges <laughs> and um, we we watched it my brother and sister were over and we watched it with the kids like we've got, I've got teenage children my daughter probably too young really to have seen it at 14 although Ooh. she took herself off to bed fairly quickly okay. but the rest of us watched the whole thing and oh my god it was such a bummer <laughs> <laughs> it was such it's a such massive, a depressing
0: film. It such a massive
3: me. bummer. Yeah. And then my wife at the end of it, because she was, she wanted to watch uh, Top Gun Maverick again. We'd seen Top Gun Maverick. I was like, we've seen Top Gun Maverick. She's like, it's so good. I was like, I know. I loved it too. It was great. She's like, let's watch that. That's what Christmas is about. Christmas is about Top Gun Maverick. Not fucking Banshees of Inner Sharon. I was like, come on, in Bruges. They've got the gang back together again. It'll be fun. We don't want to watch Top Gun Maverick. We don't need to see Top Gun. We saw it two months ago. So we struggled through Banshees of Inner Sharon. And my wife just, when it was finished, she just sighed this kind of deep, disappointed, existential sigh and said, I'm going to go to bed now.
0: (laughs) Up to bed. Uh, and then my shit.
3: brother and sister very slowly got up off the sofa and sighed as well. And they said, Yeah, I think we'll I think we'll go too. We'll
0: Merry it. Christmas, everyone.
3: Merry yeah. Christmas. Thanks for that. Uh see you tomorrow. Uh-huh. We, we, we probably have to get the train fairly early tomorrow. So uh <laughs> That's a nightmare. Say, anyway. That's a nightmare. <laughs> were
0: you were you sweating all the way through it as you realized oh, this isn't the fun I promised everyone?
3: First 20 minutes I was thinking smash it's a smash look at it and my wife was even saying oh my god it's so beautiful look at mm. it wow it's incredible I was thinking yep you bet Buckles <laughs> has picked a winner it's an absolute peach and it's got a bit of substance to it you know Top mm. Gun Maverick that's all fine you can only have so much escapism mm. we're going to wrestle with some real themes here uh, in in the beautiful Irish countryside but then then when when fingers started being chopped off it was mm. like oh fuck <laughs>
0: What is the film that is not critically acclaimed? People don't like it, but you love it unconditionally.
3: Cocktail. Wow. Cocktail is not a film that I would ever recommend to someone uh, as a great piece of cinema. But um, I do love it, and I have seen it quite a few times, and I didn't see it all that long ago, again, for about the sixth, seventh time, maybe. Wow. I went to see it in 1988 when it came out because I was a cocktail bartender at the time. Where? Yeah. At a place called the Chicago Pizza Pie Factory in uh, Hanover Square in London. And it was the first time I I was, I started out as a busboy there, clearing plates and doing all that. And I graduated to cocktail bartender and they took us, the bar manager took us to see cocktail when it came out because he said, we've got to raise our game. Because TGI Fridays was Mm. a big thing in the West End restaurant cocktail world because they did all the flair. They did all the stuff that they do in cocktail, throwing stuff around and spinning bottles and all that kind of stuff. And we didn't really do that at our restaurant, but the bar manager said, we've got to start doing that. That's what people want. Got to start chucking (laughs) glasses around. So off we went to see cocktail to pick up some tips. And aside from the glamorization of heavy drinking and the world of cocktail bartending, both of which I was quite heavily invested in Mm -hmm. and a fan of. You know, Tom Cruise is pretty good. You can say what you like about that guy, but he is not short of raw charisma. True, And he's fucking good. And also Elizabeth Shue. She's no Mm. slouch either. She's fantastic. And then Brian Brown, also very good, underrated actor. And, And his character is very funny Brian Coglan Coglan's law I found on the internet the other day uh, a list of all the Coglan's laws from cocktail <laughs> drink or be gone <laughs> drink or be gone Coglan's law never show surprise never lose your cool never tell tales about a woman no matter how far away she is she'll hear you Coglan's law <laughs> Anyway, I love cocktail. And also, you've got lots of beautiful locations. He goes off and he's a bartender in Jamaica or Barbados or somewhere for a yeah. while. And it's all very stupid and aspirational and goofy, but uh, I like that.
0: Did you do poetry and get really good at flipping stuff at Chicago Pizza Pie Town?
3: Uh, no, and no. Okay. One of my first efforts to do some flair and flip some bottles ended up with me. A smashing a large plate glass mirror right. um yeah. behind. So that was a sad time. And then soon after that, I slipped and brought down a giant stack of glasses, like a tower oh, of shit. highball glasses. And they all smashed and then I landed on top of them palms out.
0: Oh I did. landed
3: on this big jagged glass pile. Shit. I still have a I still have a scar across my left oh. hand from the giant wound I got from that. So no, I was pretty cack-handed. How many stitches did you get? Must have been a lot. I mean, Mm -hmm. the thing is that I was fairly anesthetized with alcohol at the time. It was a busy Friday night shift and we would occasionally drink, booze while we were at work. This was at a different restaurant by that time. So it didn't hurt that badly. And then I went to the A&E during the shift mm. and they stitched me up. And then I went to meet everyone after the shift no. in, the, in the bar.
0: Was everyone like, Way! down the road in,
3: in Soho. I was like, hey, I got <laughs> loads of stitches. It's amazing. Let's get some shots.
0: <laughs> what is the film that you used to love? But you've watched it recently and you've thought, I don't like this anymore.
3: Well, probably The Breakfast Club. Great answer. So that came out in 1985 and I saw it on my birthday. And actually, you know what? This is the, this is also the answer to another question that you had in your list, which is what's the film that had the most meaning to you because of mm. where you were at and where you saw it? Okay. So this is the answer to both of those questions. Well, let's hear your double, double answer. Yeah, I, I, I saw it on my 16th birthday, June 7th, 1985. That's when it was released in the UK. And it really spoke to me very directly about the intolerable pressure that I felt being exerted on me by the adult world and the extent to which adults didn't understand what it was like to be a young person because their hearts had died. Right. I don't know if you know, but when you grow up, your heart dies. <laughs> And uh, I felt like, yeah, that is fucking true. That is so true. When you grow up, your heart dies. And the only people who still understand what it is like to feel are young people. And no one really understands what it is like to be young except John Hughes and the cast of The Breakfast Club. And it was just like nonstop emotion. It's just mm. this emotional roller coaster. Laughs, incredible laughs. Ha 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 ha. And real sadness at some of the struggles that the characters were going through their their difficult home lives and not being able to measure up to their parents' expectations and things like that and not doing well in exams. Yes, I can relate to all this stuff. And then also loved Ali Sheedy. Mm. She played a kind of gothy nerd girl who I very much fancied. Just thought, I (laughs) love you, gothy nerd girl. And at the end, when John Bender, played by Judd Nelson, he's the kind of yob bully Mm. character in the film, who, it turns out, is only a yob bully because of his horrible, abusive home life. Mm. So um, he's not that bad, actually, it turns out. And he ends up being the kind of emotional center of the film. Anyway, his life is changed by this momentous time in detention with these other guys in the in the breakfast club and um they all acquire a new understanding for each other's problems and then when john bender goes out after detention is finished and he's got his walkman on and he's listening to don't you forget about me by simple minds and he punches the air and it freeze frames and it's hey 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 <laughs> damn damn <laughs> And then that summer, 1985, I was on holiday. I went on holiday and it was kind of the first time I went on holiday without my parents. And every time we went to a disco, they were playing. Well, it was, it was, uh, I want to dance with somebody by Whitney Houston. And don't you forget about me by simple minds with the two big floor fillers. Right. So it was just kind of like year zero for my intense F- emotional self-absorption. <laughs> <laughs> And it felt incredible. And I think I ended up seeing the film about four or five times. Like yeah. I would take everyone I knew. Like, we, Have you seen Breakfast Club? Oh, I'm going to take you to Breakfast Club. I think it's important for your emotional <laughs> development. So we, we went to see that. But then about four or five years ago, again, flicking around on the TV. Mm. Hey, it's the Breakfast Club. I thought, oh, yeah, give that a watch. And um, it was very painful.
0: <laughs> it's it's unbearable I yeah. used to love it too they are awful all of them they oh. are
3: awful aren't they I mean oh. I still got some there's still shreds of sympathy for some of them. I mean, it's he- sort of heavy themes that, it, that it's dealing with. Suicidal thoughts and abuse and all sorts of things, but it's juxtaposed with this very casual, weird uh, sort of harassment, sexism, mm. homophobia, all, all, all this stuff kind of right up against each other, you know, which to be fair to it is kind of what things were like. Yeah. in those days. And I, I and I guess a lot of those things haven't gone away completely, though we think about them differently. And, you know, even at the time, I think I thought some of those things were a bit weird. Like, it was weird when Ali Sheedy's character goes off and gets a makeover and then comes back and they've turned her into a sort of conventional girly girl with a bow in her hair and yeah. uh, makeup and stuff. And we're supposed to be delighted because, <laughs> oh, look, you've turned her into just a standard girl. <laughs> But it was obvious to me, like, no, she was way better before when she yeah. had dandruff and, <laughs> and she was all gothy. But but yes, it was the the thing that was most painful, I think, was just the level of self-obsession mm. that was being celebrated. And I thought, oh, that makes sense that my intense kind of self-absorption was being validated by this movie. Ooh. Not only validated, but but made legendary and celebrated, you know
0: were you worried that your heart had died?
3: Well, no, I knew that my heart hadn't died and I was <laughs> I think I felt sorry for my parents. I think I just thought, "God, I got them totally wrong. Obviously their hearts hadn't died." <laughs> yeah. They were just I I know that they were they were just trying to do their best and this idea of what adults were like was so off. It was way off. There was no real empathy there. And I know why there wasn't, because the point of the film was to to make young people feel good about themselves and, mm. and to validate their angst as teenagers. Fair enough. But uh, I don't know. The, the The messages I got from it were all way off.
0: <laughs> so hang on. That's your answer to film you used to love you don't love anymore and the film that means the most to you because the experience of seeing it right
3: yeah because because at the time it was so incredible at the time it was everything to me I loved it and I loved it every single time I saw it I was like oh yeah great it's this bit oh brilliant it's this bit I love this bit and I loved all the funny lines and yo Ahab gonna have my doobage and all that (laughs) brilliant Love it.
0: <laughs> <Brilliant>. <laughs> what about uh, related to? What's the film you most relate to?
3: I mean, probably Woody Allen films. I think the first time I saw Annie Hall yeah. in my late teens, I think it was the first time they showed it on British TV around about 1987, when well, I would have been 16 or 17. And that felt very much like something I hadn't seen before. And I just thought, oh, yeah, that's. I, I think I see the world the same way. Mm. And also the fourth wall breaking that Woody Allen does in there. And just a general sense of like, what kind of person do you want to be? Do you want to be one of those people who's got everything sussed? Uh, Do you want to be one of those kind of handsome, successful people? Or do you want to be one of the kind of sensitive, slightly screwed up people? Or even not not like, do you want to be those people? But who are you and and, and who's your gang? (laughs) and i thought well if it's a choice i'm definitely with the sensitive screwed up people
0: yeah
3: and i'm against the handsome got it all sorted people and that's that's sort of what i took from from that film and also just obviously i'm i'm kind of hesitant now because because talking about woody allen is cut, colored by so many other things that yes that we think of when we think of him and accusations and allegations and all this miserable stuff that is now inextricably linked to him. But back then, of of course, there was none of that when
0: I was watching it for the first time. Annie Hall is fucking amazing. Yeah. Annie Hall is is a fantastic show.
3: And she's amazing in it. Yeah. She's like, it's one of those, when I say she, Diane Keaton, her character, that's the blueprint for so much modern comedy. Mm. You know, when you think of brilliant comedians like Julia Davis and Kristen Wiig and people like that, when you think about brilliant female comedy performers, a lot of them are drawing from the, the, that Diane Keaton energy yeah. that um, I'd certainly never seen before seeing that film. And just the intelligence that she radiates and, and the oddness and being able to zero in on very small details about the way people behave while being very lovable, you know, being mm. someone that you, you could easily imagine just falling in love with and becoming obsessed by, you know. So yeah. everything
1: about it rang true. Right, answer. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other.
4: It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I dot com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions
0: may apply. Adam Buxton, what's the sexiest film you've ever seen?
3: Sexy, sexy films. <laughs> oh. Well, The Name of the Rose has this scene in it where Christian Slater playing a young... Oh, that
0: one. That one. Go on.
3: Encounters a young, feral peasant girl in in the kitchen of a monastery. Mm. And um, when is it set? I don't know really exactly when The Name of the Rose is set, but it's olden times. And (laughs) it's a very, very sexy scene. He gets seduced by this girl and she doesn't even speak. She doesn't even say anything. All she does is make sexy peasant feral noises. <laughs> <laughs> and uh he just lies there while she takes off his habit mm. and gives him a jolly good seeing to. And he can't, he's got this look on his face like he doesn't understand what's happening and he can't really believe
0: what's happening to him. And it's very good. Would that be your, your dream version of how you lost your virginity?
3: Yeah, I'd be, I'd be a monk and I get seduced by a sexy, feral peasant girl who doesn't speak. Doesn't <laughs> who speak. does? Who crucially doesn't speak? <laughs> doesn't give me a hard time. That's my ideal woman. <laughs> <laughs> that's a joke,
0: by the way. That's, I think we've irony there. <laughs> that is a really good answer that has not come up before. What's her name, the lady? Because she was then in. Um, she was in the Christian Slayer. Fuck. The one with Travolta and Christmas later.
3: She's called Valentina Vargas. I'm looking her wow. up now, and the the name of her character is
0: just the girl. The girl. The silent girl. The girl. Really good answer. I mean, there
3: was there was a few around then. You know, it was things like um, it was things like that, and oh god, what's the French one? Betty Blue. That was the, oh, that was the big Blue. one. Betty Blue. That was Blue's pretty saucy the one. stuff.
0: That's a saucy one.
3: Yeah, and you could smoke when I saw that as well. Like you wow. could smoke in the cinema. And after that first sex scene, everyone in the cinema lit up a ciggy and everyone laughed.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. There's a subcategory to this question. Troubling boners, worrying why A film you found arousing that you weren't sure you should, Adam Buxton.
3: Well, probably The Man Who Fell to Earth, directed by Nick Rogue. Yes. And that features uh, David Bowie, obviously. Yes. And uh, it's a science fiction film about a... um, an alien man who comes to Earth and he's looking for uh, technical solutions to the problems that have afflicted his home planet. They've run out of water, so he's got to try and find some way of getting some water and bringing it back uh, to his planet. (laughs) And he does that by becoming a millionaire, applying all the amazing technical know-how that he has to uh, some of the Earth's problems and building companies that will make him rich so that he can take some water back home anyway in the meantime there is also some quite saucy sex going on with rip torn who is in there playing a teacher like a college professor a sleazy college professor who has relationships with some of his students and i first watched the man who fell to earth with my mom aged around 11 or 12 or something mm. And I was, a, by that time, I was a big Bowie fan already, but I didn't know anything about The Man Who Fell to Earth. I saw it in the TV Times. It said, Man Who Fell to Earth starring David Bowie, science fiction. I was like, oh, brilliant. I love science fiction, love Star Wars. And I was just imagining this film that was like, but, you know, David riding around with some robot friends and some lasers.
0: Flippy bin.
3: <laughs> yeah, flippy Ben, maybe singing with the bin and uh, having laser fights. It's like, fucking hell, it's the perfect film. Mm. And my mum was like, oh, David Bowie. I like David Bowie. Yes, I like Space Odyssey. That's a good song, isn't it? A space Oddity, mum. She's <laughs> like, yes, let's watch The Man Who Fell to Earth. So we sit there, we watch The Man Who Fell to Earth, and it's fucking weird. And there's this really long, weird sex scene with uh, Rip Torn, quite near the beginning of the film, juxtaposed with shots of David's character, watching sort of Japanese no theatre in a, sushi restaurant or something with lots of shouting and animal noises in between shots of rip torn rolling around with this much younger woman in a bed and taking photographs of each other it was very awkward (laughs) sat there with my mum; she's sipping her wine and none of us is you know not saying anything at all it's like oh my god i want this fucking film to be over but i was quite turned on Mm. and then later on in the film there's another excruciating sexy with Bowie, <laughs> Bowie and Candy Clark, where you get to see David's Todger as well. Mm. Mm. Um not, I don't think it's the nicest shot you could wish for of Zayvid's Todger. But uh, there was something sexy about that. Bowie's very beautiful in that film. Mm. So it was quite a it was quite a sexy roller coaster for young buckles.
0: How would you reshoot his Todger in a way that would be more flattering, do you think? Hmm. Was it the lighting, the angle, what are you was Yeah, it, it was a low angle. Cold, it's blue light. Cold in the studio, do you think? I think he could have done with a fluffer.
3: It was right, very Right. It, it it didn't look its best, I don't think.
0: Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's an excellent answer. What is objectively, objectively the greatest film of all time? Might not be your favourite, but it's the pinnacle of films.
3: Well, out of the films that I have seen, and I, you know, haven't seen all that many films. I've seen a lot, but my film knowledge is by no means complete. And there's so many foreign films I haven't seen, which I have to get round to. I'm fairly mainstream. But out of the films I've seen, I think the one I keep thinking, oh my God, I think that's sort of perfect, is Paths of Glory, Stanley Kubrick.
0: Oh, wow. Wow.
3: Never come up on this. 1957. And, um everything about it is brilliant. It's short for a start, right? So it's, I think it's 80 something minutes and it's incredibly tight and smooth and relentless, but, but there's no fat on it whatsoever. It's like, he's just trimmed everything. So it just barrels from one scene to the next without feeling rushed Mm. or anything. It's, but, but, but it's just like, well, I don't need to have any chat there? We'll just move to this next scene. Okay, so these guys are going to be... So if you haven't seen the film, it's about um, set in the First World War in France. And uh, it's a general who decides that he's going to tell his troops to take this important German position, but it's a total suicide mission. There's no way that they're going to, it's called the Ant Hill, this position that they need to take. It's heavily fortified and all the attempts that they've made to try and take this position have failed. Loads of men have been killed. Anyway, he just sort of casually announces, this has gone on too long. I want your guys to attack the Ant Hill and take it by tomorrow afternoon. So let's sort this out once and for all. And so then you have Kirk Douglas's character, who is the commander of this um, division and he has to carry out this order and they, they have a go at taking this position and they are immediately beaten back and loads of them are, are killed. And then the general decides that uh, he's going to court-martial loads of them for cowardice. There's more to it than that. But anyway, so, so that's the basic premise. And it ends up just being this really extraordinary illustration of um, the madness of war. <laughs> you probably think war's great. Yeah, I did until I heard this. Yeah, turns out it's not that good. And Uh actually, there's loads wrong with it. And actually, the people in charge of war Mm -hmm. often uh, have a fairly shaky grasp of, of what it entails for the people actually fighting it. All of this was news to me, but fucking hell, it's amazing! And the performances as well are really weirdly out of time. I think you often get that with Kubrick films, though, mm. and it reminds you what what a you know what a very talented director can do is is get these performances from talented actors. And so you've got these um, performances from Timothy Carey. I looked up some of the names of the actors: Timothy Carey and uh, Wayne Morris as these characters who feel totally real and naturalistic and completely out of time. You know, you think of the average film from 1957 and most of the time the acting is going to be very stiff and mannered um, and very not naturalistic, but this is is totally different. I mean, it's a combination. You've got some scenes and some bits of acting in Paths of Glory that are more stagey and con- conventionally dramatic, but they're always punctuated by these s- strangely modern-feeling moments and performances. Mm. And it builds to this incredible climax, this court-martial and the result of the court-martial and then a coda that's, talk about moments that make you cry, impossible to watch without just dissolving afterwards with these, with all these soldiers on a break from fighting, sat in a, in a bar. And this German prisoner of war young woman is kind of pushed on stage. And um, they all start kind of mocking her and jeering at her because she's a German and they're all French soldiers. And the whole atmosphere of the scene is charged with menace and threat. You know, you feel like either they're going to attack her or something bad is going to happen. And also she's so frightened and vulnerable. And then she starts singing and they all just go quiet. And mm. listen to her singing this sort of um, German folk song. And even though it's this German song that she's singing, suddenly, you know, they're all connected with their humanity. And um, fucking hell, it's amazing. And and she's played the woman who sings the song by Christiane Harlan, who became Kubrick's third wife and ended up, oh, uh, wow. you know, that, that that was the last time that he married. So she was she was married to Kubrick for the rest of his life. It's such an extraordinary film.
0: It's a very, very good answer, Mister Buxton. And there's never come up before. And um, mm. I'm grateful. So, big points. You get ten points for that. Actually, so well done. We just, you finally started scoring. What? <laughs> <laughs> what is the? Uh, what is the film you could or have watched the most over and over again?
3: Well, probably Alien. Okay. Um, it's sort of perfect. Uh, but also up there is. Uh, I think with Nail and I. Nice. I've seen that a lot. I think I've probably seen that once a year or so since it came out. And that holds up pretty well. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I showed it to my kids the other day and they were a little bit mystified. But um, it is very funny.
0: It is. It's quite specific with Nail and I.
3: Well, it divides people. I think I, I yeah. think it mystifies younger generations. And I met a... Um, I met this guy in America, an actor who I, whose name I won't say, but successful actor, and he didn't like it at all. He was like, oh, I no, I, I didn't think that was at all funny. I was, I was like, what? Are you insane? It's one of the funniest films ever made. <laughs> I mean, I think there's some people who love it, some people who just mm. doesn't speak to them at all.
0: I don't like to be negative for too long. I don't know about you, but what's the worst film you ever saw?
3: Well, I struggled with this. The film that popped into my head, when I was trying to think of the worst film I ever saw, was Long Shot with Seth Rogen and Charlize Theron. I love that film. (laughs) Well, people did love that film. And it got great reviews. And that's why I hesitate, because I like all the people involved with it. Love Charlize Theron, like Seth Rogen, like the writers, like Ah. the director. And uh, I saw it had great reviews. And I thought, oh, brilliant. I'll watch that. And and it was when my mum was still alive, but it was towards the end of her life. And she was staying with us. And it was just one of those things. I think that a big part of people's appreciation of films is just circumstance. yeah. And, um, you know, what kind of mood you were in when you saw a film. And that's why you can recommend a film that you really love to a friend, but there's no guarantee they're going to get what you did from it. Because who knows what kind of mysterious forces were at play when you saw it yeah. and when you connected with it. So it just missed the mark. It was just the wrong film at the wrong time. Uh, watching with my family and watching with my mum, and expecting a kind of funny, irreverent, romantic comedy thriller, and then finding this incredibly foul-mouthed. <laughs> it was just non-stop. Like I don't mind swearing, but I have to be ready for it, <laughs> you and it need was a just non-stop. <laughs> fuck shit motherfucker and then really gross jokes seth rogan wanking at one point and then yeah. jizzing in his beard and then uh, and you know my mum my old mum sat there <laughs> luckily she was fairly addled by that point and didn't really know what was going on but it was very awkward right and then there's a sex scene talking of sex scenes a sex scene with Rogan and Charlie's Theron and She's and you know she's playing this kind of strong self-possessed character and she's on, she's on all fours and she says do me from behind and choke me a little and I was like is this what we've come to is this a, <laughs> is this a strong woman I don't know it's an argument for another day isn't it about uh, third wave feminism but it was just at the end of it it was a
0: bit it was a bit banshees of Sharon." So you've, you've spent a lot of time over the years on a sofa with your mum with a travelling boner. This happened. <laughs>
3: <laughs> that's a good phrase, yeah.
0: Consistently throughout your life. On the
3: sofa with my mum, the travelling boner. <laughs>
0: uh, you're in comedy. You're very funny. But what is the film that made you laugh the most, Adam Buxton?
3: Well, God, so many you know, with Nell and I and Spinal Tap and Bridesmaids, that scene on the plane I'm always talking about with Mm -hmm. Kristen Wiig when she's hammered. I think that's maybe one of the funniest comedy performances ever. But overall, with everything that it means to me and how well it stands up, I think Galaxy Quest. Great film. Because we watched that the other day and we We got some um, members of my extended family together and everyone was kind of bummed out. When we saw it, we wanted to show them something that would cheer them up a little bit. And I said, I think Galaxy Quest might do the job. And I hadn't seen it for a bit. Saw it when it came out in 2000. And for anyone who hasn't seen Galaxy Quest, it's kind of a Star Trek spoof about the cast of a Star Trek type TV show who are on the convention circuit. And then they run into some real aliens who think that they are a real heroic crew of a real spaceship. And the aliens ask them to come to space and help them out with a problem they're having. And um, it's just so funny. And uh, who's the, oh, it's Tim. Tim Allen. Tim Allen is, is the Kirk character. And then you've got Sigourney Weaver, who is the female sidekick. And there's lots of quite good, jokes about um you know gender stereotypes and racial stereotypes but but for 1999 which is when the film was made they're fairly the touch is fairly light you know if you made Mm -hmm. those same jokes now those notes would probably be hit a lot harder and actually the lightness of it is quite nice Mm -hmm. i think and it's so, so it's kind of a brilliant film but The thing for me that turns it into this work of comedy genius is a performance by one of the blokes that plays one of the aliens, the Thermians, and he's like the head Thermian and um, he's called Mathazar, and he's played by this actor called Enrico Colantoni, who I hadn't really, I don't think I'd seen him in anything else. And he still pops up. He does bit parts here and there, but Enrico Colantoni... (laughs) does this amazing voice for Mathazar. And I saw a documentary about the film the other day, fairly new documentary, which I really enjoyed. And it turns out that Enrico Colantoni was channeling um, vocal exercises that actors sometimes do when they're just kind of <laughs> doing weird things with their voices. Yeah. And he was thinking, well, if I deliver my lines with these kind of weird vocal exercise intonations and cadences, then maybe that might be the character kind of thing. So he does that and he he just makes every single line into this piece of jazz right. with all these surprise, unexpected cadences and little ecstatic yelps and...
1: then <laughs> he's kind of
3: talking like this the whole time. And it's magical. And then that plus he does this sort of goofy grin... So every every everything he says he's smiling and all the rest of the thermians the aliens are all grinning the whole time as well <laughs> and they move around like thunderbird's puppets yeah. with their hands ahead of them up and down as if they're being puppeteered and fucking hell it's funny and it works so well and it still holds up brilliantly plus it's a film with real heart it's got a great premise which they do justice to and they see it through it's really brilliantly paced mm-hmm. And it's a celebration of kind of fan culture before people really thought about all that sort of stuff. You know, nerd culture before nerd culture became slightly wearisome. (laughs) But um, it's about how much fans care about these things and how much they're invested in them. And Mm. wouldn't it be amazing if the two worlds collided? And it's so sweethearted and brilliantly done.
0: Yeah, it's sort of perfect, isn't it, that film? Yeah. It's really flawless.
3: Well, they're doing a TV show of it now, Are they?
0: I didn't know that.
3: I thought so. I don't know. Well, everything's on hold because of the writer's strike, but I yeah. I thought that they were doing a, a TV version of it. This which is hard straight. to imagine. I don't know
1: how yeah. that would work, but witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
4: Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine-washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's
2: A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
0: Adam Buxton, you have been amazing and wonderful, and I'm very grateful for your time. However, when you went for a walk in the mall, in a few years, and you're walking past the vape shop and the mobile phone case shop and a tray of people trying to sell paintball experiences, and you thought, do you know what? This isn't for me, all this. And you saw the very pretty people standing outside of the very shiny door, and they were gesturing to you, come in, come in, come in. And you looked up, and at the top it just said, you, the And you were like, I'm you. And you walked through the door, and they sit you down on a lovely little bed and they were like feeding you grapes and this <laughs> like on this big, sc- big IMAX screen and you were watching Alien and all your favourite films, Midnight Run was on and the air- airplane scene from Bridesmaids and you- you're having such a lovely time and you don't even notice while you're there that someone sticks a little injection in your vein. You don't even notice because you're having such a nice time and then you sit there and you see... Images of fields, lovely fields and grass and the sun and then
3: suddenly you're gone. And Ryan Reynolds and, and Taika I'm
0: Waititi doing bands. Doing doing some blooper stuff. Blooper a band. Bit, someone tripping over a bit of the set and laughing. People laughing. They can't get through their lines. They're laughing so much. And you even see a bit from with Nell and I, they're laughing. And I walk past. I'm in the mall. I'm like, fucking hell, and I'm carrying around my coffin. You know what I'm like? Yeah. And I'm like, has anyone seen uh Buckles? Anyone seen him? And they go, yeah, I think he went into that shop called euthanasia. And I go, oh, no, he hasn't, has he? Uh, you, know, well, you know what that means, don't you? And they were like, what? We haven't been in there. And I go, well, you're not getting phone cases in there. I said, follow me. We go in, we find you dead. Absol-. I go, look at that. He's absolutely dead. The thing is, the stuff they've pumped into you, has made you swell so much, so much more than I was expecting. So you're much bigger than the coffin. So I get a lot of the mall workers, I say, come on, help me. We get a load of axes. We start chopping you up, chopping you up, chopping you up, chop up your body into lots of little bits. We pile it all into the coffin. Squash, 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 squash you all in there. It's really rammed in there. There's only enough room in that coffin for me to slip one DVD into the side for you to take across to the other side. And on the other side, it's movie night every night. What film are you taking to show Bowie and all the other musicians in music heaven with all the music when it is your movie night? Adam Buxton, please.
3: Well, that's, that's a really tough question, obviously. Can I tell you like some titles that I'm thinking? Yeah. I mean, obviously there's Galaxy Quest. I haven't known that to fail. That's so mm-hmm. far not let me down.
0: Oh, you're thinking of it also in terms of in the same way your Bans- banshees have in the and disaster. You're like, I'm having to watch. I'm in with heaven with China David Bowie
3: people. sat around yeah, and yeah, yeah. Prince and all the yeah, yeah. and my parents a lot of press, and all that stuff. Yeah. Mm. So I think that would. I haven't known that to fail. Galaxy Quest is an absolute peach. I do love the documentary about Apocalypse Now. Hearts of Darkness. Hearts of Darkness. That is like mm-hmm. one of the greatest documentaries ever made, with some amazing moments in it. That's a film that I've watched a lot over the years and shown to many people, and they have enjoyed it as much as I have. But sometimes what you're looking for is just a kind of fun, stupid film that is going to not scramble anyone's head too badly. They can just watch it, and it's fun, and it's a little bit exciting and a little bit dramatic, and then everyone's okay at the end of it. And a good example of one of those films is Breakdown with Kurt Russell, 1997.
0: I love Breakdown. Breakdown's great.
3: It's absolutely terrific. J.T. Walsh, one of the all-time great character actors, playing a bad guy who's uh, on... He goes and... Well, he's menacing Kurt Russell and his wife, played by Kathleen Quinlan. They're on a road trip out in the wilds of the American West, I think. And their car breaks down and these... uh, And mayhem unfolds. But it's brilliantly tight well-paced mayhem with a very satisfying denouement. And uh, Mm -hmm. if you like the River Wild, which I personally very much do, then you will enjoy
0: Breakdown. Excellent, excellent choice. You've made a lot of excellent choices. I'm giving you another 10, but I'm giving you 30 points for this. Uh, 32, actually. Adam Buxton, I'm so grateful to you. I really, I feel very honored to have spent this time with you. Is there anything you would like to tell people to look out for, to read or to listen to coming up from you in the next few months?
3: Nope. <laughs> Great.
0: Thank you so much for doing this.
3: <laughs> no, not really. I mean, you know, I'm just, I'm just piddling along with my stupid life. And uh, I've been taking some time off to try and do some more writing. Uh, right. In a more, you know, in, a, in the usual kind of memoirish way or in the same sort of way that i did with my first book ramble book writing about you know life and death and parenthood and all that kind of stuff and i've been trying to make some music to put out on an album that's been sort of fun right. and there's a couple of a couple of good things so far but it's going fairly slowly things generally go slowly in my uh creative life and uh, i've been recording new episodes of the podcast which should start going out i don't know when this will air, but. Uh, they should start going out in September 2023. More interesting and, you know, genial people that I'm talking to. And uh, yeah, very grateful for my lot. Happy to be able to do what I do. Grateful to anyone who pays it any attention whatsoever. And thanks so much for having me on. I hope I haven't been too meandering and weepy.
0: You were wonderful. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Thanks, man. Good day to you. So that was episode 260. Remember to watch Ted Lasso and Shrinking on Apple TV+. Head over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein for the extra 25 minutes of chat, secrets and video with Adam. Go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating, but write about the film that means the most to you and why. My neighbour Maureen loves reading it it makes her cry, she thinks it's beautiful and it's really appreciated. I really hope you're all well. Welcome back. I hope you've been having a nice summer and everything's okay. Lots of love to you all. Thank you so much to Adam for being so great and giving me his time. Thanks to Scroobius Pip and the Distraction Pieces Network. Thanks to Buddy Peace for producing it. Thanks to iHeart Media and Will Farrell's Big Money Players Network for hosting it. Thanks to Adam Richardson for the graphics and Lisa Lydon for the photography. Come join me next week for the biggest guest of all. No spoilers, you'll have to wait. But you are going to fucking love it. So that's it for now. In the meantime, have a lovely week. And please, now more than ever.